Genesis chapter 3. I invite you to turn there with me if you'd like to follow along in the Bible. It's page number 4 in the church's pew Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her se- your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. And for our New Testament reading, Luke chapter 23, 32 to 43. It's page 935 in the church Bible. Luke 23, 32 to 43. This will be our sermon text this morning. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing now. Our Lord God, we ask you to bless us now to take your word, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us, after the image of Christ, show us our Savior. We pray that you would do you would do your work now through your word, for Christ's sake. Amen. Think of the think of the word paradise. What uh, what do you picture when you when you hear that word paradise? Maybe you picture a tropical island, right? Crystal clear water, pure white, sandy beaches, perfect temperatures. Maybe you think of Maine, the way life should be. Right? Vacation land, paradise. Right? We, uh, we have this idea of paradise in our culture, this, and it's not just our culture, it's really across all cultures, this idea of a perfect place. A place where there's no, where, where nothing goes wrong. Right? Or everything just goes, just goes smoothly, everything goes right. There's no sin, there's no effects. From sin. That's what we all long for. That's what we want. Um, that's why the marketers can make so much money on those islands. Because that's, that's what we want. We want this, this idea of this, this perfect place of paradise. And it's not just what we want, is it? It's also, in a sense, what we were made for. Right? It's, it's what we were made to have. We read earlier of how, how Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Right? The place where there's no sin. No effects from sin, paradise, and, and they're there, and, and then they're exiled from the garden. And, and all humanity is exiled from the garden with them. We're, we're cut off from paradise. 
cut off, not, not from this place of just fleshly pleasures, but, but this place of perfect fellowship with God. That's what we were made for. To be there in God's presence. No sin, no effects from sin. A perfect relationship with God Himself. That's what we were made for. And then, of course, that's what we've lost in Adam. But here, in our text, Luke 23, Jesus promises us nothing less than paradise. Than, than, than that perfect relationship with God. Not just restored the way it was in Eden, but brought, uh, brought to something even higher and better. So that's, that's, that's uh, what Jesus promises us here in this story. This story we've just read, loved ones, here in Luke chapter 23. It's one of the most uh, profoundly moving accounts that we read in all of Scripture, I think. And not just all of Scripture, but, 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 but any, any account of anything, anywhere. Here we have this. Here we have Christ on the cross, giving grace, showing love, being crucified, yet forgiving those who crucify Him, promising this criminal, suffering beside Him, paradise in His kingdom, it's a glorious, glorious thing. So let's unpack this. And let's do so by, by looking at the three main actors, the three characters who dominate this account here in Luke 23. There's three main actors in this story. The first is the blasphemous serpent. The second is the believing sinner. And the third is the obedient son. The blasphemous servant, uh, serpent, the believing sinner, and the obedient Son. So first, the blasphemous serpent. As we jump in at Luke 23, verse 32, we're kind of jumping in. Uh, if it were a movie, we'd be jumping in at the big climactic battle scene right now. Uh, we've been thrust into the, the climax of the story here. So we've got to kind of rewind a little bit to, to get the context and understand what is going on. Who's the serpent? Well, it's, it's Satan. And when we read of this, this is why we read Genesis 3. Here comes the serpent. In Genesis 3, at the very beginning, he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he persuades them that sin is sweeter than obedience to God. And from that moment on, the, the battle lines are drawn. And this is the story of the Bible and the story of human history. On the one side, there's the seed of the woman, the offspring, the, the descendants of Eve. And then on the other side, there's the serpent, Satan, and his spiritual descendants. And we see this, right? Think of the Old Testament history, right? Cain and Abel, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, in conflict. And it goes on. We see it, right? Egypt is the seed of the serpent, fighting against Israel, the seed of the woman. It goes on. David and Goliath, on and on through history until, finally, Christ, Jesus, comes. He is, he is the great descendant of Eve, the seed of the woman God promised in Genesis 3.15. He's the, he's the hero that, that, that God's people have been waiting for to come and finally defeat once and for all this serpent. And we read about this in the Gospels, don't we? Beginning of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus starts his conflict with the serpent. He goes out into the wilderness against Satan, to fight Satan. What does Satan do? He comes to Jesus in the wilderness three times, and he, and he comes to him with three temptations. He says to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. 
Jesus has been, has been fasting for 40 days. Satan comes and says, use your power to serve yourself. Misuse your power. Not to obey your Father on the hard road of suffering and obedience. No, use your power to get something for yourself. Jesus doesn't listen. Satan tries again. He says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you worship me. Again, he's saying to Christ, there's an easier way to get what you're here for. You're, you're here to establish your kingdom. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, Jesus, if you just bow down before me. There's an easier way than suffering and obedience. Jesus, again, refuses. So the serpent tries a third time. He, he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself from the top of this temple and God will save you. Save you. And, and again, excuse me, Satan is telling him, if you are the Son of God, let's, let's prove it. Let's do something dramatic to, to get people's attention so that they will acknowledge that you are who you say you are. That's how the battle begins between the serpent and the son. Satan comes with his temptations, just like he did with Adam. And at the end of that opening battle there, in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, that account of the temptation of Jesus, Jesus is victorious. But Luke 4.13 tells us that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time, until he had another good chance to attack Christ. And that's what we see here in our text in Luke 23. This is the opportune time. This is the, this is the climax. And here's the Son. Here's Jesus. He's hanging on a cross. He's bleeding. He's, he's suffocating. And, and the serpent comes and brings three more temptations. Now, maybe you think, well, Satan's not mentioned in the text. How, how, how are we saying he's the, one of the main characters here? Well, his fingerprints are all over this scene. We see, we see it in the context. We see it in Luke 22, verse 53, just the chapter previous. Jesus tell those, tells those who've come to arrest him that, uh, that he says this, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is, the, this is the time when the powers of darkness, right, the satanic and the demonic, are at their worst they have all the mass to bring down the sun. So what's happening to Jesus isn't that just that there's an, there's, there's an angry mob who's come up against him. No, this is, this is a great spiritual conflict. There was never, in fact, there was never a time when there was more, uh, uh, more spiritual conflict than this. This is the time when, when, when the powers of darkness have, have brought all their, all their might against Jesus. So that's the context here. And, and here in the text itself, we get this echo so loudly of Luke 4 and the temptation of Christ there. Here in the text, we get three more temptations. First, we get, we get the leaders of the people, the rulers of the Jews in verse 35 say this. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Do you hear that? They're, they're echoing the very words of Satan. If you are the Christ, use your power for yourself. If you are the Christ, prove it to us. If, if, you're, the Christ, uh, if you're the Christ, get down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. There's an easier way than suffering and obedience. 
This is a, this is a dark moment, isn't it, for Israel? For their, these are their religious leaders. These are, these are the, the people who've studied the law, who know the law of God. These are the, some, some of them, perhaps some of the priests. And here they are, putting their Messiah to death. The one they've been waiting for and longing for. At least, that's what they would have said. They're putting him to death. They've become a mouthpiece of Satan himself. You can imagine how that temptation must have felt to Christ. Right? He, he had the power to get off the cross if he wanted to. And wouldn't, wouldn't the Jews finally be impressed? Finally say, you really are the Messiah. But he knows they would not. They didn't, they didn't believe in him when he made the lame walk, when he gave sight to the blind, when he raised the dead. No, they still rejected him then. It wasn't that they had a lack of evidence of who he was. It was that they had blind hearts and hearts that refused to trust in him. But it's not only the leaders of Israel that join in the satanic temptation of Christ here. It's also the Roman soldiers. We see this, that uh, the, the soldiers themselves carrying out this crucifixion in verse 36 and through 38 mock Christ. They, they laugh at Christ. They point at the sign above his head, right? This placard above uh, Christ's head on the cross which said, this is the king of the Jews, and they're laughing. This, this is your king. This, this, is, this is a king. You'd never see a real king on a cross, right? You've ne- you'd never see the Roman emperor on a cross. That's a real king. And they, they think this is just a joke. They, they shout out at Christ, if you are the king, save yourself. If you are who you say you are, use your power to save yourself. Isn't that what something like what Satan is tempting Christ in the wilderness? Use your power for yourself for once. Use it, use it to save yourself. So here they are. Together with the Jews, they've taken up the temptation speaking for Satan himself. And this shows us, loved ones, just how complete the rejection of Christ is. How, it's not just the Jews or the Gentiles. This is symbolic that the whole world, as it were, is rejecting this Jesus. God has come down. God himself has come down. And the whole world is mocking him. Then again, there's a third temptation. This comes from beside Jesus. Look with me if you have it at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. It's a very subtle temptation, isn't it? He's, he's saying, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and save me. You, right? If you're the Messiah, then your job is to save. So why don't you save me now? He, 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 he's calling out to Christ to save him, but he doesn't really believe. He's, he doesn't want salvation from God's wrath or salvation from his sin. He just wants to get down off this cross that he's on. just wants Jesus to meet his felt needs. So he's bitter. He's angry. He's, he's basically saying, some Christ you are, some King you are. You can't save. You can't save yourself. You can't save me. And so, and so here we have one, two, three, again, these temptations coming to Christ. If you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, Let's see some power. Let's, let's see you use your power to, 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 to accomplish your kingdom. There's an easier way than the path of suffering and obedience. How does Jesus respond to these three temptations? Well, we're not told right away. 
Instead, Luke turns our attention to a second character, a different character, and that's the believing sinner in verses 40 to 42. In the middle of all this mocking and temptation, another voice breaks in, and it's a surprise, isn't it? The, the voice of one of the criminals besides Jesus actually comes to sound like a voice that's not a voice being uh, joining in the temptation. The criminal on the cross beside Christ starts rebuking the other criminal for mocking Christ. He says in verses 40 to 41, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. See what the criminal does? He does does a couple things. He First, he owns his sin. He says, I'm guilty. I deserve to be on this cross. And then he says, that man, Christ, does not deserve. He's done nothing wrong. I don't think those are throwaway words that Jesus isn't, doesn't just deserve to not be on the cross. I think he's saying this man has done nothing wrong. No sin in him at all. You can't say that about anyone else. So the, the, the criminal here knows that Christ is suffering not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And then, then this criminal, after he's rebuked the, the other criminal who's mocking Christ, he turns to Jesus himself. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He confesses Jesus as Lord. Kurios, that's the, that's the Greek word that translated Yahweh, Lord, in the Old Testament. The covenant name of God. He's confessing that Jesus is Lord, God Himself. And then he, then he confesses that Jesus is coming into His kingdom and asks, remember me, Jesus. Isn't this just incredible? He's on the cross, and beside Him is Jesus, who looks just like any other man, nailed to a cross, and He says, that's God, that's my Lord, and, and that's the one whose kingdom is on the ascendancy. He sees Christ nailed to the cross, And he says, that's the one I'm going to trust in. That crucified, naked, weak, dying man. What happens? What happens here in this criminal to make him do this? Not even Jesus' disciples see this. His disciples, they see Jesus on the cross. They run and they scatter. They don't say, his kingdom's coming. What does the criminal see? It's a miracle of God's mercy, isn't it? This criminal didn't figure it out on his own. I mean, other gospel accounts tell us that a few moments before, he himself was mocking Christ. But then, God's grace hits him, and in an instant, he sees Christ. He's been changed. God's gracious call opens his eyes. It should fill us with hope, loved ones. God is able to open the eyes of any sinner he chooses no matter how hard with sin their hearts might be, and no matter how late it might be for them, God, by His sovereign grace, is able to open any heart He chooses. So maybe you have a loved one who doesn't know Christ, doesn't trust in Christ, and you've spoken with them, and you've prayed for them, and you've prayed, and you don't see a sign, any sign, right, that that their hearts are softening. Don't give up. God, by His grace, can save them. Keep pleading with Him, too. There's also hope for ourselves, isn't there? Right? If, if we've ever asked, is it too late for me? Am I too hardened in my sin? 
have I have I have I sinned one too many times? Is that sin that I struggle with and and, and I've repented for, but keep coming back to? Is it is it too much? The grace of God comes to the criminal on the cross. Surely God's grace extends to us too. I mean, this man wasn't just. Um, He's not, he's not on the cross for jaywalking. Uh, Crucifixion is not just any punishment. This is for the worst. This is for the criminals that the, Rome, the Romans want to make an example of. But he gets the grace of God. He doesn't have time to go uh, improve his life. He doesn't have time to go be more sanctified. God's grace comes to him nonetheless. He owns his sin. He sees his guilt. He sees that Christ is the one who can save him. And he cries out to him. And that's it. And that's all. That's the point, loved ones. Luke here shifts our attention in this, with this character. He, he takes our eyes for a second off the, the huge cosmic battle we were looking at between the serpent and the sun. And he, he, he tells us, look at this criminal here who's, who's been brought to faith in Christ by the grace of God. He does that, uh, I think, the Spirit through him does that because he wants us to see ourselves here and to, to ask ourselves, how will I react to this Christ on the cross, this man being crucified on the cross, Jesus? How will I respond to him? Will I join in all those who, who are mocking him, laughing at him, and tempting him? Or do I see Jesus on the cross and say, that's exactly the kind of king? that I need. But why? Why should we see him as exactly the kind of king that we need? Why is it? What, what is it that God opens the eyes of this criminal to see in Jesus that so compels him to put his trust and confidence in Christ? Well, to see that, let's turn our attention now to Christ himself, the third, the third character in this account, the obedient son. Jesus himself is the center here. He's the, his actions, his words are the center of the drama. So let's look at him. What, what's he doing? Why is Jesus on the cross? It's a good question to ask. I think sometimes we just, of course Christ is on the cross. That's, that's what we've come to expect. We've heard it so many times. But, but really, why is he on the cross? It doesn't make sense at all that, that the perfect Son of God would be on the cross. That's what the people here, you know, the onlookers here in this scene are thinking. Right? They, they, they were looking for a king. This doesn't look like a king. This doesn't look like the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a Messiah who'd overthrow the Romans, and now the Romans are crucifying this Messiah. Not the kind of king they wanted. It looks like his life is over. It looks like his kingdom is over. So what is he doing on the cross? Well, first, the first thing we see that he's doing is that he's suffering for the forgiveness of sins. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's Jesus on the cross. And he looks down at those who nailed him to the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. He, he looks down at those who are mocking him and laughing at him and tempting him to sin, and he says, Father, forgive them. He's not saying every single one of them will be forgiven, but he is preaching here the forgiveness of sins in his name. That he offers forgiveness to the very worst of sinners. That's what he came to do. 
This is, this is what he's doing on the cross. He's bearing God's wrath for our sin so that we can be forgiven. Consider how, consider how willing the Lord Jesus is here, loved ones, to forgive sins. He's forgiving those who are putting him to death. Uh, will he not also forgive us? He is, he, is, he is rich in forgiveness, full in it, more than we can imagine. It was our sin that held him there, right? Isn't that what we sing? It was my sin that held him there. And, and so he's praying here for our forgiveness. Perhaps some of you struggle to understand how God can be willing to forgive you. you. You look at yourself and your sin and your past or a present struggle perhaps that you have with sin. You think perhaps Christ is willing to save others, but I don't know if he's willing to forgive me for my sin. But he's already prayed for your forgiveness here in Luke 23. This is the first thing we see Jesus doing. He's making it possible for sins to be forgiven. But there's more. There's more. He's also, this is the second thing he's doing, he's also fulfilling perfect obedience to his Father. We don't see this so much in his words. We, we see it in his silence. We, we looked earlier at how Satan was throwing everything he had at Christ to try to tempt him and bring him down. Three times he tempts him to use his power to get off the cross, to find an easier way to save his people than the hard road of suffering and obedience. But through every temptation, Jesus is silent. He doesn't respond to a one of them. He's perfectly obedient. He doesn't question. He doesn't complain. He doesn't let a temptation get any hold on him. It's not because it wasn't, uh, 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 you know, real suffering that he was going through. You know, we, we read earlier in Luke of how he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is in agony over these things with what he's facing. But he has determined to obey his Father and nothing will sway him from that, no matter how much it costs himself. Loved ones, this is absolutely important for us. I think, I think we know, perhaps better, uh, we're more familiar with the idea of how Christ forgives our sins, and we, we know how important that is for us, that I have a record of sin, and he needs to cancel it by his death. I need that. But we need this. We need this, too, this obedience of Christ for us. Let me try to unpack why a little bit. Um, in Luke's Gospel, you know, he, pays, he pays special attention to how Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, for example, he, he traces, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. It's unique to Luke. Uh, Matthew goes back to Abraham. Luke takes us all the way back to Adam, and he's telling us something there. He, and, and he calls Adam in that genealogy the Son of God. Then in Luke chapter 4, about Jesus' temptation, he calls Jesus the Son of God. And then Jesus, like Adam, is tempted. And so, in other words, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is, a, is the second Adam, the greater Adam. What's the significance here? Why does it matter that Jesus is the second Adam? Well, Adam was the, the representative man, right? He was the, the, the public figure. He's the one who stands before God and covenant with God. And God says, you know, if, if Adam, if, if you obey, all humanity will be brought into paradise. If you disobey, all humanity will fall in you and be exiled and driven out from Eden. Satan comes, tempts Adam, Adam falls. Adam just crumples before the temptation. 
Adam's exiled, and we all are cut off from God in him. And then finally, though, the second Adam is here. Right? And that's what we need. We need a new representative to stand before God for us. And so Jesus comes as the greater Adam. And, and what does he do? Well, he, he, he obeys. He doesn't obey in a garden where he has everything he has, like Adam should have done. But he's in the wilderness and he obeys. He's on the cross and he obeys. He doesn't listen to Satan's temptation. Forty days without food, he doesn't listen to him. Suffering on the cross, he doesn't listen to him. He will obey his Father. And by that obedience, he opens paradise. Look with me at Jesus' words to the thief in verse 43. He says to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what, this is what Jesus' suffering for sins, this is what Jesus' perfect obedience have done. They've opened paradise itself. Paradise is a rare word in the Bible. It only shows up a couple other times in our English translations. It's used first, uh, it's used in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul uses the word paradise there to talk about heaven and his vision of heaven. But then it also shows up over in Revelation chapter 2, which says this, Revelation 2, 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God tree of life. That should bring to our minds the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, right? What Adam and Eve were were hoping to eat from after they passed their test of obedience. It's what they're cut off from, the tree of life. Where is it? It's in the Garden of Eden. But but now Revelation 2.7 says it's in the paradise of God. And that's the literal meaning of the word paradise. It means garden. It was the word that was used in the Greek New Testament, uh, excuse me, the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the garden. Of Eden. So this is what Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross in verse 43, saying, I am the second Adam, the obedient son, who's opening up the way again to God's presence, opening up the way to paradise. Right? When Adam fell into sin, God drives him out, and there's the flaming sword, right? Judgment and death for anyone who tries to get back to God and partake of the tree of life. Jesus comes. He suffers, takes the sword, takes the judgment obeys perfectly, opens up the way to paradise. But not to an earthly paradise. Not to, um, not to a paradise like we started off imagining. Uh, Jesus brings us to something far better. He brings us to the very presence of God. Right? Eden itself wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't the end game. It was, it was pointing... Uh, it, it points us to the heavenly home of God. And Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in the very presence of God. You will have what you were made to have. You will have the fulfillment and joy in the presence of God that you were made to have. That's what Jesus has done for us, loved ones. This is why he's done what he's done. This is why he's on the cross. To open up paradise to us. So has Christ said to you, has, has the Lord Jesus said to you, you will be with me in paradise? It's not a promise he makes to the other thief, is it? He only says it to the criminal who repents. Who gets to hear Jesus? Who gets to hear Jesus say, you'll be with me in the heavenly home of God? It's not the righteous. It's not the important. It's not the healthy or the religious. It's not uh, sinners who are just sinners. No, it's 
It's, it's criminals who trust in Him. Sinners who own their sin and look to Him for grace. So if you've done this, then Jesus does say to you, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in the heavenly home of God where sin and the effects of sin are gone forever. So, loved ones, let me close by encouraging you, pleading with you to look away from yourselves and look to Christ there on the cross and see that He has opened paradise for you. Put your trust in Him. Hold on to His promise. A day will come when He will say to you, today is the day you'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray together.